Welcome to today's Crit IQ podcast. I'm Todd Fraser. I'm delighted today to have two of Australasia's leading critical care researchers with me. Paul Young from Wellington, New Zealand, and Ian Seppelt from Nepean Hospital in Sydney, Australia, are part of a working group that is looking to launch a new international multi-centre randomised control trial looking at the role of selective digestive decontamination in ICU patients. Welcome both to the podcast. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Thanks very much, Todd. Paul, if I could start with you. Um, the concept of SDD has been around for some time. What's the rationale for, for SDD in, uh, in ICU? Well, look, I guess in short, the answer to that is that uh, hospital-acquired infection is a big problem, um, and uh, intensive care patients in particular are highly susceptible to hospital-acquired infection. Um, and the population that we're interested in studying, which is patients uh, who have, uh, I guess, relatively prolonged requirements for mechanical ventilation, are extremely high risk and have uh, very high mortality. Um, so the rationale for the intervention really is that um, the administration of uh, oral antibiotics, well, oral antibiotic paste and nasogastric antibiotics combined with a short course of intravenous antibiotics will uh, reduce the rates of hospital-acquired infections and um, <clears throat> ventilated patients and uh, improve uh, their survival. Ian, there's, a, there's obviously been a lot of background information with SDD. It's been studied for years and years. Um, what is the current evidence that suggests that it's beneficial? So it's, it's got a better evidence than anything else we do interestingly enough. To date, there's been 36 randomised controlled trials. Um, all of them show improvement in hospital-acquired infections, especially respiratory infections, and roughly half show mortality benefit as well. I think there's been 11 meta-analyses that all suggest a mortality benefit. So, so looking at that, the question is, well, why the hell aren't we doing this? Uh, and, and that's a question that, that we're extremely interested in. Around the world... This therapy is only really used in a small part of northwestern Europe, mainly in the Netherlands and a bit of Belgium and a few specific European sites. In the UK, actually, it's been used in 12 ICUs in the UK um, in, in various different forms. But it's not accepted as a therapy really anywhere else in the world, despite the evidence base. And that's a question our group has been looking at is, is asking, why don't we accept the evidence and to follow on from that, is, is the evidence overwhelming and we just need to convince people or are they not accepting it for a good reason and we therefore need a different or bigger or better trial of some kind to, to answer the question one way or the other? I guess that's the big question that, that anyone who's been watching this debate for any length of time is asking is why, with that sort of level of evidence base, have we failed to accept it into mainstream practice? Well, what do you know about that? So we, we've recently completed a, a qualitative interview-based study uh, looking at key opinion leaders in, in four, four jurisdictions, so in the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, and we did structured interviews on intensivists, infectious diseases physicians, senior nurse managers and intensive care pharmacists, and we tried to identify exactly this, what, what are the barriers, what are the concerns that these people have. And the, the summary of all of those data, things differ a little bit from country to country, but overall 
there was general acceptance that it's an important question. There was general lack of belief whether there was a true benefit or not, um, but equipoise in that almost everybody was very willing to consider the therapy and to study it further. But almost universally, there was concern about the emergence of resistance, and that's the main thing that, that is the barrier to adopt, adopting the therapy. And that is that is reflected in a lot of editorials, isn't it, about the concern for resistance generation. Is there any reason yeah. in the literature why we should believe that that's a possibility? Interestingly, no. Of all the RCTs, only two have looked properly, in fact, have looked improperly at, at ecology, but only two have looked at the ecology at all. Um, they're the two most recent studies from the Netherlands published in the last decade. And neither of them have shown any signal of increased resistance or any signal suggesting concern. Indeed, one of those, there's a single centre cluster trial in an ICU that has two otherwise identical pods. Um, they showed that the SDD arm, in fact, overall led to less antibiotic usage than the usual practice arm and, and fewer resistant organisms than the usual practice arm. So at least based on those data, um, it's a safe therapy and might even lead to less resistance. Um, people then turn around and say, ah, yes, but that's in the Netherlands. Um, there's almost no endemic MRSA. The whole therapy is based around selectively getting rid of pathogenic gram negatives. What does it mean in our place where we do have endemic MRSA? And no one knows the answer to that. I guess um, the other question that keeps getting raised about resistance generation is the time frame that we need to be looking for it over. Do you have any comments on that? So that's certainly quite relevant for the study. For, for our primary study, there's two co-primary endpoints. One is mortality and the other, other is the emergence of new resistant organisms in the study ICUs over the study period. And, and both of those are co-primary endpoints. However, we've got a, a parallel ecology study planned to run with this. So while the actual RCT will only go for, for a year or so, the ecology study is going to go on beyond the end of the RCT. It will study the, all, all resistant organisms in the ICU in any patient. And while the duration of that isn't totally decided, it could be as long as five years. Microbiologists don't believe there's any need to go anywhere near as long as that um, and they feel that any signal is going to be obvious in about six months but the average intensivist perhaps doesn't quite have the same faith in the science and wants to see a much longer follow-up period. On any uh, objective assessment of the evidence, I think particularly in relation to antimicrobial resistance, you'd probably have to come to the conclusion that at the moment the data are not great. Um, and really, uh, the issue of whether this is a therapy that's going to, over time, lead to the generation of resistant organisms is one that really hasn't been adequately addressed in the uh, studies that have been conducted to date. Um, it is fair to say that the limited evidence that exists doesn't support the notion that antimicrobial resistance will be increased by this intervention and suggests that antibiotic use in some settings may go 
down. Um, but I, I think that uh, the data are not strong enough to really say anything other than we really need more data. Paul, there's obviously now a decision that uh, we need to go on to some further sort of evidence. If the evidence that we've got uh, at this point is inadequate to change uh, minds and practice, why go ahead and do this big trial now and what do you hope to achieve that others have not? I think the key thing that we're trying to do with this study is we're trying to address these two key questions simultaneously. One is, does it work if you're not uh, Dutch um, and uh, does it uh, increase antimicrobial resistance or not um, and I think the reason why this really big study that's adequately powered needs to be done now is that the evidence base that exists um, really does pretty strongly suggest that this intervention uh, may reduce mortality and really, at the moment, people around the world don't have the opportunity to get the treatment. Um, and uh, to me, that's sort of, uh, that's kind of a tragedy, you know? Um, and it's something that really is a moral imperative for us to deal with. Um, so that's really the reason why we're doing it. And uh, I guess one additional aspect of what we're doing um, is that... Uh, you may have gathered from the stuff you've seen already on the, the blog that this is a huge trial we're planning, um, much bigger than all of the other studies that have been conducted. Um, and the reason for that is that we're randomising intensive care units uh, in a manner that allows us to really address this question, this question of antimicrobial resistance in a way that hasn't been done before. So tell me about the trial. How will it be structured? How many centres are you looking for? How many patients and how will it be run? Uh, so this is a, a, a cluster trial, which means that we'll be randomising intensive care units to either standard therapy or to uh, STD. Uh, we're expecting that we'll enrol uh, 100 patients, 100 intensive care units. Uh, and uh, I believe... The total number is around 25,000 patients. So it's a huge undertaking, um, but I think that, uh, and it's, you know, it's an ambitious thing, and particularly this need for us to run it across multiple countries uh, makes it a really challenging thing. But uh, I guess we're involved in it because we believe it's worthwhile and important. Ian, can you tell me about the intervention arm and how that will be structured? So it's going to be as as close as possible to, to what we're calling classic Dutch STD. Um, we, it's, it's part of the planning process. We've gone through many cycles round and round in circles about whether our practice and our local microbiology is sufficiently different to make changes. Um, conclusion is ultimately that if we don't do what the, what the Dutch have already shown to work and the study is a negative study, they'll say, oh, but you, you got it wrong. Uh, so for that pragmatic reason, if nothing else, we've decided that we do need to follow the well-published traditional Dutch therapy um, as much as possible. There's a few little things that um, for a couple of reasons have to change. 
and it's just for, for logistics and pragmatics. So what we're doing is we'll be manufacturing mixtures of the oral and enteral non-absorbed antimicrobials, and these will come sort of pre-manufactured and pre-packaged for use. So it's both, both the oral paint and also or the oral paste and also so the slurry for, for down the nasogastric tube, which will be a combination of octobromycin and colistin as described by the Dutch. The Dutch recipe has amphotericin as the third component, and, and that's something that is, is no longer possible purely because it, it is almost impossible worldwide to get good old-fashioned amphotericin. Um, instead, we're going to be using nystatin, Microbiologically, they're actually identical. Uh, the only reason we don't use nystatin intravenously is it's too toxic intravenously. But as a non-absorbed enteral drug, nystatin and amphotericin are, are almost indistinguishable. So it's going to be oral and enteral, tobramycin, colistin and nystatin, plus four days of an intravenous antibiotic um, at the beginning. Now, the issue of uh, intravenous antibiotics is, a, a, is an interesting one. Uh, there's been some meta-analyses that have suggested that the IV antibiotics uh, are directly associated with the mortality benefit, and where they're not used, uh, that mortality benefit disappears. Can you comment on that? I, I will comment on that. Um, certainly, the most recent meta-analysis by our group has said precisely that. Um, pragmatically, it's not actually a big as big a deal as people make out it to be. The preliminary data that we have suggests that 70 or 80% of the patients that we're putting into the study are on therapeutic antibiotics at the beginning anyway. Um, and for that, so long as the antibiotics these patients are already on has an appropriate spectrum of action, and we'll be publishing a, a long list of what we consider acceptable, then the patients just stay on whatever they're on. And it'll only be that, that minority who are on no antibiotics but are still predicted to be ventilated for two days or more that we'll be putting them on to, to four days of IV therapy as part of the study. For that, it'll be a third-generation cephalosporin or if there's a problem with that, such as an allergy, it'll be ciprofloxacin. But ultimately, I think that will only be a minority of the patients. Reading the Dutch papers closely, that's pretty much what they did, though it's sort of in the fine print and people who read them more superficially feel that they're all getting extra cephalosporins or Cipro, which is not quite the case. One of the other questions that has been raised is the role of surveillance cultures and how they'll be managed within the trial. Surveillance cultures are a mandatory component of SDD, which again is sometimes forgotten where people feel that it's just giving drugs. But as originally described and again as, as practised in all, all the RCTs to date, it's a mandatory and necessary component. So for, for, for our trial, we'll be mandating um, at, at least once weekly endotracheal and perineal swabs um, for, for all patients who, who are in the study plus any other patients in the ICU where there's a concern. Paul, one of the issues that keeps getting raised in relation to SDD is its tolerance amongst the nursing staff. Is it, um, is it as bad as it's made out to be uh, by some areas of commentary? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's interesting. One of the things that we found in our, in our survey was that uh, the doctors perceive that the nurses won't uh, 
like doing it, but the nurses don't perceive that they won't like doing it. <laughs> so, so um, I mean, I guess uh, I've never done it, so I can't say how difficult it is to do it. Um, but I guess I would say that uh, if it reduces mortality, uh, then uh, I think the nurses will uh, be very comfortable doing it, and they already do uh, oral hygiene, and I can't really imagine that uh, applying the paste is really going to be a particular barrier to implementing this therapy if it actually works. But that's just my own belief. I don't know if Ian wants to add anything to that. Yeah, I support that. Certainly from the quantitative study, all the nurses involved basically said, yeah, you know, problems. Um, that might have been biased because these were senior nurses known to have some sort of interest in the area. But in general terms, our nurses already do mouth care. They already clean the patient's teeth and use mouthwash. And in a point prevalence study we did, exactly half of our patients in Australia and New Zealand get oral chlorhexidine. Um, the other half don't for, for whatever reason. So the nurses are already doing all that sort of stuff. Uh, the, the addition of one extra component really is just, just part of the day's work. Um, I, I can't imagine our nurses refusing in any way and certainly speaking to the nurse, they say, well, that's just not the culture. If it's a medically prescribed therapy, they're going to do it. Uh, so the, the barrier we're going to have, as, as you identified in the blog, is senior doctors saying, well, hang on, this is a problem, the nurse will hate it and therefore not wanting to be in the study, and we do have to address that barrier. Finally, I guess, um, what are the steps involved now, and if people are interested in getting involved, how should they uh, get themselves involved? So the timeline is, for, for the next year, we, we need to get money. Uh, so this is going to involve applications to major granting bodies in, in all four countries, so in the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, and... Unless the study is properly funding, it's not going to go ahead. So it's a, that, that's certainly a guarantee I, I would make to to ICUs that it will be properly funded. There will be there will be money for research nurses to do all the data collection and do everything. It won't be a burden on the ICU in that regard. As part of those grants, we do need evidence of feasibility, and, and the feasibility is some sort of non-binding st statement of interest and. Both Paul and I would very much like to hear from, from any ICUs in Australia and New Zealand that are interested in participating. I, I might just say, say it again what it's going to involve if you do agree to, to participate. It means, firstly, agreeing to be randomised. So your ICU will be randomised to either be a usual practice group, in which case nothing that you currently do will change, or an STD unit, which means you follow all your other usual practices, but with the addition of protocolized STD. Uh, in both of those groups, the research nurses will be asked to collect data on all patients who fit the inclusion criteria, carry, carry the, the, the usual logs, um, and, and follow up outcomes. As a cluster trial, all patients who are who fit inclusion criteria will be in the study because the whole ICU is the unit of randomization. So this will be done without consent. There are some ethical barriers that, that we're, we're addressing, but there won't be any requirement. And in fact, it would be 
scientifically meaningless to try and get consent from individual patients. The primary endpoint is hospital mortality, which can again be got without consent, but a subset are going to have a long-term follow-up and they'll be specifically asked for their consent. Uh, they'll be a completely random subset, so they should hopefully be representative of the entire, entire cohort, but they'll, they'll be approached with words to the effect that your ICU is in this study, therefore you've already been in it. We would like to follow you up. Please give us permission to follow you up and to deliberately segregate out the follow-up consent from participation in the study. So that's basically what it involves. Um, I think that once ICUs undertake to be part of it, it should just disappear into the background of the unit's usual work. It's not a threat to any other research that they're doing. I guess the only real conflict would be some specific antibiotic studies if you're do, doing very particular antibiotic kinetics or some antibiotic drug trials, there might be a problem. But aside from that, there'll be no difficulty co-recruiting just with Sudoku running in the background and still still running any of your other studies up in the foreground. Um, the data collection work will be significant, but it'll be fully funded for, for the person who does the data collection. And hopefully there's the opportunity to answer a very, very important question one way or the other. That's absolutely true. It's wonderful that uh, you guys are turning your attentions and considerable skills to this important issue. Um, we have, of course, got a blog running on this issue, and if you're interested in uh, discussing this in any further detail, head over to the blog at um, www.critique.com slash blog and share your thoughts. Uh, Paul and Ian have already been on the blog and have answered some questions already. Uh, and it would be great if you have got questions or are interested in this topic to uh, get on and share your thoughts. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks heaps, Todd, and thanks for uh, inviting us to, to do it. It's been a great opportunity for us to spread the word. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Todd. That's been marvellous. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.